All right, and we are back. Welcome. Welcome today to the Biblos Network. We are glad that you're here. We're glad you've decided to join us. I pray that your day is blessed. It's highly favored. The Lord bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. It's an ancient blessing from the tribe of Levi. Aaron and his sons were commanded to speak this to the people, and I it's very fitting that God would do that and to speak that into our lives when we are serving the Lord and following along in that ancient Old Testament and New Testament paradigm. So I pray this broadcast finds you doing well. I hope you're blessed where you are. I know that we are doing great here in Durham. God has been very good to us. We've just come out of our East Coast Conference, um, and I think our last session was with Brother Barry Sutton. We got a lot of great feedback from that uh, from a lot of you, you've sent your questions, you've um, made comments, so I, I'm glad it can be a blessing. But the Sutton's a great man. He's pastored a great church. Um, so I'm excited about the guests that we've been able to have on here. I, I trust it's been a blessing for you. These are friends of mine, and, and we choose them on the, on the very strict criterion of whoever I want to have on here. <laughs> Um, that's that's the criteria that we choose, our, our guests. Sometimes it's a guest, sometimes it's a monologue. Today it's a monologue, guys. I've got some things on my heart, and and I wanted to take a little time to meet with you and talk with you. I, I received a message from a young man who asked a question. And if you are a oneness Pentecostal, if you're an apostolic, you will probably run across this question sometime in your life. And his question was, Brother Urshan, what is modalism? Are we modalists? What is modalism? Can you explain that to people? Well, I think maybe one day we'll just kind of pull all these uh, recent podcasts together and we'll put them, on, put them under a heading of oneness, um, one God scriptures. Because there's a lot of information we're going over. And I, I have a lot to share with you today, guys. I've been... Diving into and digging into some some things in in history that that really impact us in terms of how we believe what we believe, how we have got to the point that we are at, and the methods that the enemies of the scripture have used to gain dominance and supremacy in pushing forward um, an antichrist narrative. So I'm going to try to answer that question today. We're going to talk a little bit about modalism. Where do we come from? What historical record do we have of oneness apostolics? Um, and why does that even matter? Because we're dealing with a lot of, of issues today. We're dealing with a lot of different dynamics. And we're seeing a lot of social uh, forces unleashed on the world. And if you look at it, you might think this is the first time we've ever encountered it. I was talking to some of our young men before the before the broadcast today, and they brought up some good points. I'd like to share them with you. Um, back in the old days, in ancient times, Roman times, and even up until the 1940s with Adolf Hitler, whenever a a group of people or a dominant people went to war and they conquered and they were trying to 
um, impose their ideology on the world or on a nation, they would try to destroy all remnants of the people who went before them. Their competitors were ruthlessly stamped out. And one of the things they did was they would burn books. Uh, the Nazis were famous for their book burnings. The, the Catholic Church, uh, the Inquisition, were famous for running down their opposition, their adversaries' perspectives. And they if you got caught with them, they would kill you. They would imprison you. They would torture you. They would uh, haul people into um, dungeons and torture chambers, and they would torture them until they gave up or they confessed to where the books were and the writings were. They would then send the foot soldiers. They would go get them. Uh, a lot of that was medieval, uh, but but even as recent as as the Holocaust, Nazis did this. The Romans, the ancient Romans, were some of the first to really, really employ this. So we're going to talk about some of that. Um, but let's answer the question first. Uh, modalism. What is modalism? Are we modalists? And the answer is no. We are not. Oneness Pentecostals are not modalists. We are accused of that at times. Um. And this probably goes to something that our Trinitarian friends, uh, some of them, some of them are very respectful, very kind, and they're genuine seekers of truth. Others are a little more um, aggressive, and they, they purposely mischaracterize what and who we are. So they'll use slanderous phrases like, you're Jesus only. Or in the Spanish culture, it is, you are Jesus solo, which is Jesus only. And, you know, that would be like us looking back at them and saying, oh, you're the three God people. You're the people who who believe in three gods. Well, technically, Trinitarians will say they don't believe that. They say that they believe in one God, and they are monotheists, but there are three persons in that one God, and that oneness believers don't understand the difference between being and personhood. So we do. <laughs> we actually got some pretty smart guys and girls in our ranks, we do understand. We just soundly reject it because we recognize it for the Hellenistic um, echoes and corruption that it really is. God is one. He's indivisibly one. And he manifests himself in, in three primary ways in terms of redemption, but thousands of ways that he deals with humanity. And so uh, we just will not violate that oneness of his nature. God is one. Not only is he one, that is the greatest commandment in the Bible. Mark chapter 12. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Shema is a big deal. It was part of the phylacteries that, if you've ever seen a Jew, a Jewish person, a practicing Jewish person, pray with the phylacteries, they will put a box on their forehead and they will put a, a, a wrapping around their arm. And they are literally fulfilling the scripture in Deuteronomy 6, that you will bind it upon your hand, upon your arm, and you will it will be as frontless between your eyes. And what that meant was it will dominate your thinking, it will be in your mind, and it will be in your actions. That's what the hand was all about. So I'm, I'm completely given to God in my actions and in my thinking. That was the Shema, the greatest commandment of the Bible. There is one Lord. Apostolic oneness Pentecostals, we hold to that just as firmly. We are ready to die for it. Um, one way that that is practically corrupted is when people insist on baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That never happened in the Bible. Um, 
Matthew records the saying, but Luke 24, Mark 16, um, both of them said that these things would happen in my name or in his name, referring to Jesus. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, they only baptized in the name of Jesus. So there's just overwhelming evidence that that one God revealed himself through the man Christ Jesus. And he was God manifest in the flesh on the earth. And there's a lot of people who believe this, thousands if not millions of people who believe this down through history, who were killed. They were martyred. They were massacred. Um, The original early church believed this. And so I want to talk to you about some of the tactics um, of of the adversaries of Scripture. Um, I guess before I do that, let me properly define modalism. Modalism is different from oneness theology in that uh, modalism usually contains the idea that God manifests himself in three different manifestations or modes, but most of it includes the idea of a modalistic succession, meaning God was the father and then he stopped being the father and he became the son and then he stopped being the son and he became the Holy Ghost. And when he was in each different mode, he stopped being the other. And so um, we know that that never happened. We know that God can be in every form, every every manifestation he wants to be. He can come and speak to Abraham on the plains of Mamre. He can be in heaven at the same time he's in your heart and, and in my heart. And he can fill all things. At the same time he's doing that, he's on Mars. He is outside of the cosmos. He's outside of time. God does not live in space-time. He's outside of that. And um, that's what omnipresence and omniscience and uh, omnipotence is all about. And so God is a spirit. And, and he has all of those divine attributes. So to try to define him and to try to put him in a box and say he can't be this, he can't be that, or how could God, or how could God do this, none of that is applicable to God. And he's the potter, we're the clay, and the father became the son, walked in flesh, walked the earth, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That is a great mystery. But it's not two separate persons in God or two gods, but it is one God and one man, Christ Jesus, working in conjunction in the incarnation. And that man died and rose from the dead. And what was then poured out was this combination, blending, whatever you want to call it, of that humanity and that divinity. And that is the Holy Ghost. And that is what is in our hearts today. Thank God for his gospel. Thank God for that one God who who manifested himself in these ways. So modalism is not quite what we are from what we can tell. Having said that, um, this has gone by a lot of names in history. Um, Some people called them modalists. Some people called them monarchians, modalistic monarchians, um, patropassionists, patro meaning father, passionists meaning suffered, the father suffered. So what they, they charged, the, their adversaries of early one, the early oneness advocates' adversaries would charge them that, well, you're saying the father came and died on the cross. And they would try to hurl slanderous accusations at them with a distorted theological framework. Um, we can't say the father died on the cross because, because God is a spirit. And in that original form, a spirit can't be crucified. It can't be beaten. There's no stripes with which the blood can heal us of a spirit. Um, 
the man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, came, and we accurately and rightly call him the Son of God in his incarnation. But the Father was in him, so he could look at Philip and he could say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? And though he was the Son, he could still have the Father living in him. And the Father can live in you, and it can live in, and he can live in me. So I know it sounds sometimes like you're going round and round the mulberry bush, but the bottom line is there's one God who does manifest himself in multiple ways. So they went by these different names throughout history. Let me take a little time, and I want to talk to you about some of the things we're facing today, because we're facing the same tactics. We're facing the same um, war strategies. It's, it's, it's as old as history itself. <clears throat> right now, they don't, they don't really cancel or they don't burn books, rather. Now they have cancel culture. So instead of burning books, Amazon just doesn't carry them anymore. You can't find them anymore. You can't order them anymore. Instead of killing people and, and, and destroying and actually murdering their opponents, they just cancel them. They, they delete them from off of social media. They censor them. They, they delete tweets. They will go through um, Facebook and Google and Twitter and on all the, the social media giants. Uh, one of the young men told me they control 99% of the Internet. And, and all of these tech titans that control the public discourse, if they don't like what you say or they deem that it is uh, contrary to what they the message they want to portray, and they justify that through various ways. It's not too different from burning books and from assassinating opponents. Now, instead of literally assassinating them, although they still do that too, um, they can politically assassinate you or, or character assassinate a person. And all of a sudden, you just can't find it anymore. You can't find it in libraries. You can't find it um, online. You can't find it in Kindle. Uh, Amazon just simply won't carry it anymore. And, and just like that, that modern version of canceling and deleting and electronically removing, it is pervasive in our culture. If you go against the narrative of the social justice groups, um, they, they, will, they will attack you. They will, they will send an army after you online. They'll intimidate you. They'll send death threats. We're living in a very interesting age, and we're watching these forces uh, play out. What they used to do physically in the streets of Rome, they now do electronically and digitally on social media platforms. And that's the day that we're living in. <clears throat> Let's talk about some of those early tactics, though. I want to talk about that. Because in the early church, there were many, many oneness advocates. And I probably need to talk a little bit about Rome. Rome... In the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, it extensively describes Rome. Rome is a great beast. Rome is uh, one of the beasts in Daniel that, that rose up out of the sea that was exceedingly fierce, that stamped the residue of the people. It laid waste to the nations. And in Revelation, it describes Rome as a a seven-headed dragon with ten horns upon his head. And there would be a woman, a false church. The woman is the false church. Sitting and riding upon that beast as it came up out of the sea. That's ancient Rome, the city that sits on seven hills. And the apostles took great pains to describe it. And the emperors and the powers that arose from that 
were very antagonistic towards Christianity, particularly early Christianity. Later, um, pagan Rome morphed into um, apostate Rome, which was a spiritual group. It was a it was the Roman Catholic Church. We'll talk a little bit about that, but but even before Christianity came, you need to know how Rome operated. Rome, if you if you just do a simple Google search, or or you, there's even YouTube documentaries that'll talk about this, you can read about how Rome had a great war with Carthage. Carthage, it was one of the first really true international world powers. Their architecture was breathtaking. They lived um, lives of great education and wealth. They had indoor plumbing. They had indoor ovens. They had irrigation. They they understood advanced farming techniques. They were a wonder in the world, and they, they were on the Mediterranean Sea. They, they enjoyed a great and an amazing existence in time. And this would have been a few hundred years before Jesus Christ was born, the, the Carthaginian Empire. Well, Rome was this little hardscrabble barbarian group in mud huts and whatnot that was on the rise. They slowly began to conquer the Italian peninsula. Rome, they, they fought, they, they, they warred among themselves, they, they formed greater and greater military powers. And great leaders came up in Rome. They were an up-and-coming empire, and, and Carthage really didn't think much about them. They enjoyed a lot of supremacy. Carthage had an amazing naval fleet. They were one of the first uh, empires to develop easy-to-build boats. Boats back then were like airplanes today. If you could control the waters, you controlled international trade and, and, and the nations around you. If you had a powerful navy, you were almost impregnable. Uh, you couldn't be defeated. Rome learned this, and they they their whole existence was given to conquering. And and God said it would happen. He he said they would rise up, and they would. Uh, Rome defeated uh, Greece and Alexander the Great's empire. So, from the the loins of brass, now the legs of iron. That in Daniel's vision, they they arose, <clears throat> and Rome began to threaten Carthage. Uh, there's ample history where they they fought over, I believe it was Sicily. Carthage controlled Sicily. Sicily was a, a beautiful place, a place of great wealth and commerce, and Rome defeated them in Sicily and began to take over the Mediterranean. Finally, they invaded Carthage, and they just, because they were underestimated, and Carthage did underestimate them, they, they defeated Carthage, and it took a long time. It was a very violent war. Um, the Carthaginian War or the Punic Wars um, broke out, and you can you can Google all this stuff. I'm saying this because it shows you Rome's tactics. Pagan Rome was very vicious; it was very powerful. People don't realize how ruthless and powerful they were. And one of the things they would do to their enemies is they wouldn't just defeat them; they would annihilate them. It wasn't enough to just beat them. If they feared you as a threat, which they did Carthage, then they knew they could never let you rise again. If they ever were able to get the upper hand, they needed to destroy it all the way down to the ground, raise it to the ground, burn it down, destroy the people, slaughter the people. And, and it was a genocide. So when they would come, they didn't just conquer a city. They would then spend years pulling the city apart. They would pull down the walls block by block. They would tear down the temples block by block. 
they would take existing temples and institute their Roman gods over the top of the local gods. And they would corrupt that, distort that, because they knew that the victors write the history books. Rome had a profound awareness of imperial majesty, and they felt like they were going to conquer the world. They did uh, in that day. And, and so this is one reason why the Greek gods are included in the Roman pantheon. So, you know, Jupiter and Zeus become synonymous, and, and the, the Greek and Roman gods are almost seen as the same thing. Well, they weren't the same thing. The Greeks had their own pantheon of gods, Greek mythology, but the Romans came in, took it over, and just adopted it and changed it. They were experts at doing this. So they not only would destroy and annihilate the people, the population in the cities, they would take over and include them in their own narrative, and they would rewrite history. And they knew if there was no written record of what had happened previously, they could steal it, commandeer it, almost like a carjacking. Like they would just come up alongside you, force you out of the car, jump into your civilization and take off in it and call it their own. Those are the tactics. Rome was one of the first propagandists. Um, propaganda is where you... Um, you lie. <laughs> Today they don't call them propagandists. They call them spin doctors. They call them PR uh, consultants. It's where you can massage the facts. You can highlight certain things. You can emphasize certain things. You can delete certain things. Rome was an ancient, uh, they were originator of propaganda. They knew the power of stealing the narrative and proclaiming it from that day forward. And so, they destroyed Carthage. They destroyed the great Greek city Corinth. They destroyed it. They took it over. Um, you know, there's the the history books of Hannibal, who Hannibal took his elephants and he crossed uh, in the middle of winter through the mountains and to to conquer cities. And he almost succeeded in toppling Rome. Some say that if the, if he hadn't experienced the harsh winter, he would have killed Rome. He he came very close. He was a Carthaginian general who scared Rome out of their minds. He had these, these secret weapons called elephants that they didn't really know about. And he trained them for war. And they would run into the Roman legions and they would strike terror into their hearts. And in those early Punic Wars, Hannibal almost toppled Rome. He did not, though. They were able to stop him. They were able to defeat him. And he had to run. So Hannibal, after all of his military conquests, they feared him. So they sent assassins after him, and they hounded him, and they chased him until finally they cornered him, and they were going to kill him. Hannibal wound up killing himself before they could to rob them of their victory. So, so Rome developed the secret assassin society that would come and would hound you and, and search for you, and, and that was they gave their whole life to that. So these are the tactics of Rome. Now, uh, so now Jesus comes, the New Testament is written. This is all done in the context of Rome. When, they, when Rome conquered Jerusalem, when Vespasian came and conquered Jerusalem, um, they, they didn't just conquer it. They tore down the walls and they tore down the temple and they tore it down block by block. So when Jesus said that the temple would be torn down and destroyed, he didn't just say that. He also said not one stone will be left atop another. 
That is a very specific prophecy that Jesus gave because he knew he could see the future. And he was telling them the Romans will come, they will take pry bars and and the mortar, the literal mortar holding these great stones together um, that Herod had built. They will pry this. They will tear it to pieces. And and they literally will level it. That was a great tactic of Rome. When the Roman legions did finally come in, they offered a pig in the temple to completely desecrate the the Hebrew way of thinking. A lot of people feel like that was the abomination that standed that stood in the holy place, that standeth in the holy place. Um, so here's Rome. They destroy Jerusalem. The judgment of God comes upon them. It's about seventy A.D. And Jerusalem is destroyed. Um, and the same tactics used in Carthage that were used in Corinth were used in, in Jerusalem. So it's just interesting how Rome's tactics were because we then see, this is where it all comes home to us now, the Roman Catholic Church employed these same tactics. What Rome pagan did, Rome spiritual did, apostate Rome did. The popes became the world power. When, when pagan Rome was toppled, the, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the false church came in and they instituted many of the same methods. Here's something people don't realize. If you've ever heard the name Niccolo Machiavelli, um, he was a product. He was an Italian um, diplomat who, who understood the art of war. He understood the art of political intrigue, and we still use the word Machiavellian. He was, it was cloak and dagger. It was how to defeat your opponent at any cost. He wrote a book called The Prince, and in that book, he teaches the nice guys, the princes. He teaches them how to survive and how to dominate, and he really says, don't be a Christian. Don't be nice. You've got to kill your opponent at any, at any cost, and he taught people how to manipulate, how, how political intrigue work, how the, the wicked and the, the powerful and the ruthless ruled the world. Machiavellian. Uh, Machiavelli um, took his tactics from Rome. That that those were his his templates. I believe it was the 1600s that he he did his work. His he wrote his books. Um. So one of the tactics that they would do is they would take their opponent. Which there was a time when Christianity became the opponent. I think it was Diocletian um, in the late 200s, early 300s that targeted Christianity and said, we're going to stamp them out. We're going to destroy early Christianity. There were powerful, powerful oneness advocates during this day. Most of you know the name Sibelius. Um, you may not know a few others. One of them was Noetus. Another was Praxius. These were early oneness advocates who, who virulently withstood and rejected the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't know what they believed fully. We just know that they taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were one God, and God manifested himself in this way. We also know that they had millions of followers. We know this because Tertullian said it. Tertullian, in his great work against Praxius, he talked about the oneness believers being the majority. He talked about how the ignorant and the uneducated could not understand the great mysteries of the triune God. 
And you can see the, the Greco-Roman Hellenistic influence coming in through, through Tertullian as they corrupted that original monotheistic model. And Noetus, Praxius, Sibelius, they withstood them. Some say Arius did, but Arius had a view that became known as Jehovah's Witness and, and the different other alternate oneness models that, are, that we do not subscribe to at all. But these were a lot of names that they, they would call them modern-day heresies today. And, and the only reason why they can say that is because Rome burned all their works. If you say Sabellian or Sabellius today, I mean, people look at you in horror. And people don't realize nothing he wrote survived. But there's some things we know about Sabellius. <clears throat> we know he was a oneness advocate. We know he believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost manifested himself. They say he was a modalist, but that's what his enemy said. The only record we have of Sibelius, and I think Praxius and Noetus as well, the only record we have is what their enemy said. And in particular, Sibelius, the writings against him were so voluminous. I mean, it is everywhere. They hated this guy. <laughs> and, and you have to... Look, it's almost like looking behind you with a mirror. You have to, you're not looking for what's there. You're looking for what's not there. You know, doctors say that you can do that with a, with an x-ray. Sometimes you're not looking for what's there. You're looking for what's not there. And when, when you read Sibelius's adversaries, they say things like this. He has millions of followers. Every, the whole world has gone after Sibelius. If we let him continue, He'll take over the whole world. He has followers in multiple nations. We can't stop Sibelius, is what they would say. He's this, he's that, he's a monster. He's, he's, a, he's a demon. He's, he's a, a corrupter of the people. <clears throat> All of this is coming from, from Greco-Roman apologists who are, who are trying to overtake the early oneness advocates, all of whom baptized in Jesus' name, the Catholic Church readily admits this. They call it primitive Christianity. That's what they like to call it. They put that word primitive in there to make you feel like you're ignorant. <laughs> but, but that's what the entire thing was about. They feel like they progressed after that, and they got more revelation and more knowledge. Um, we would say they were corrupted. They, they, they left the faith. They walked out from the faith. Um, but I ask myself, who is this man? <clears throat> that was able to create such fierce opposition who scared them so badly that they had to write dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of books and treatises against him. Who is this man that not only we know he wrote voluminously because there are so many attacks against him refuting him. So the question is, where's his work? Did it just disappear? Why did the adversarial work survive and the oneness works disappear? Huh. And here we see the handiwork of Rome. We see the handiwork of Diocletian. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this because we actually have some evidence. We have some strong evidence. Um, here's where they find the dissenting viewpoint and they kill it. They know that the succeeding generations will have nothing to refer to. They are trying to cement their legacy. So, Diocletian burns everything he can get his hands on. He burns as much scripture as he can. He burns as many scrolls as he can find. This is before the printing press, so 
So the printed word was a very valuable and rare thing. Books were were so valuable because they were so hard to make. They, you had to write them out by hand. And and Masoretic Jews and 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 other uh, scholars would work hard to protect and to preserve. And if you destroyed those early works, it was it was impossible to reproduce them. So we have the scriptures. You know, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have the fragments that prove the scriptures and the canon of scriptures. But guys like Sibelius and Noetus and Praxius, we have little to nothing left from them. <clears throat> All we have is their enemies. So here's a question: What happened to the works? Why did their enemies survive? Why did their work survive, and why did all the oneness works disappear? Another thing um, that I would ask is, how would you feel if your enemy defined you? Um, if you've got an enemy and someone that you have enmity with, someone that you have had great conflict with, imagine if somebody sat down and interviewed them or wrote a book, uh, or they wrote a book about you and described you. <laughs> what would they say about you? Uh, what what negative thing would they say? How would they distort your viewpoint? Um, if if their narrative won the day, what would they say about you? Well, here's a guy who wrote and and was able to convert millions of Christians to the original oneness apostolic doctrine, and the Romans made sure that their narrative survived, and the oneness narrative was destroyed. Now, there's a lot of little cults and weird people that try to say that. They try to say, no, we're the original ones and everybody else is wrong. But we actually have a very recent, historically speaking, we have a very recent example of this. I've, I've mentioned the book Out of the Flames. Um, it's a book about Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus was, if he wasn't the first, he was one of the first books written that Gutenberg printed on his printing press. <clears throat> and the book is called Christianismi, Christianismo Restitutio, Christianismo Restitutio. And it, it was translated the, the restoration of Christianity. And in it, he describes how the Roman Catholic Church corrupted and paganized what was known as the church. He goes into great detail about it. And he proclaims the necessity of the oneness of God. I think he contended for Jesus' name baptism, if I'm not mistaken, in the book. He talks about how the popes destroyed so much, and, and he was not long before Machiavelli, if I'm not mistaken, if I've got my history right. It's a little fuzzy in my head, but it's right around there at the same time. It's a time when, when the Renaissance took place and the Reformation took place, when knowledge exploded, because with the advent of the printing press, the common man could have access to the Bible. No more dark ages. No more just taking the priest's word for it. No more um, precious, priceless, handwritten scrolls, because now with the movable type, they can print multiple pages at a time. The first copy machine, ancient version of the copy machine. <clears throat> They had to hide in the woods. They had to assemble it in out-of-the-way remote locations because the power of the Catholic Church and the Protestant reformers, they'd come for them. They'd kill them. Michael Servetus, his name was originally Miguel Cervantes. He was from Spain. He was raised in a little village and converted to Christianity, but he was raised with Muslims and Jews who heavily informed his oneness monotheist monotheist position. There was no trinity allowed there. There was no Hellenized philosophy to corrupt the original message. 
And so that heavy Middle Eastern Semitic theology influenced Miguel Cervantes. He comes to Europe, he, he comes to France, he comes to England, <clears throat> and he changes his name to Michael Servetus. He anglicizes it. And he writes this book, The Restoration of Christianity, and they tried to destroy it. John Calvin, the great John Calvin, the one that the Calvinists love to lionize and almost deify, their great apostle of the Reformation, he... Uh, <clears throat> he spent years hunting Michael Servetus. He wound up killing him. Now, they'll try to deny that, but there's historical accounts of it. And it's one reason why you can't trust John Calvin. You can't trust the early reformers because they, they were not apostles. Many of them were descended from the Catholic Church. They were very comfortable killing their adversaries. And I've even seen where modern-day Calvinists will tell you that Michael Servetus got what he deserved. And they like the fact that John Calvin killed him. They burned him at the stake. Uh, history records that, that they took his book, Christianismo Restitutio, and they, they tore it in pieces and they, they papered his body with the works and they burned him alive as they for, tried to force him to recant. He would not recant. And so they papered him, they covered him with those, the books of his oneness writings that his oneness doctrine might die with him. That's the great reformers. Uh, truthfully, it was, it was Rome and it was mystery. It was Babylon. It was the harlot that was on the scarlet-colored beast. That's who it was. It was the harlot and her daughters that is the Roman Catholic Church and the daughters that came forth from her, the mother of harlots. So while they did defy Rome, while they did come out from Rome, the poisonous Romish doctrines that came from her still tried to stamp out those early oneness believers. Here's how we know it. <clears throat> There's still existing writings. Servetus' work survived. Surprise, you missed some. <laughs> There's two or three of them left in existence, and they're worth millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars. They're held in, in collections by, by, by collectors, very rare, rare books. I, I believe, and you can Google this, some of you out there that are fact checkers, I think it's the most valuable book in the world. I love it. A oneness Jesus name book is the most valuable, monetarily valuable book in the world because John Calvin tried to destroy it. And John Calvin and Ignatius Loyola, the Jesuits, they hunted Michael Servetus. They hunted that oneness scholar until finally they caught him. They put him in prison. They, they, would, they would try to get him to come in and debate and talk and they'd tell him everything would be fine and then at times he would come in, they would seize him, they would imprison him. He escaped a couple times. He, he was able to escape. But finally they got him. They killed him. And that great man would not recant. That's the beast that Daniel saw. That's the beast that John the Revelator saw. And it is one reason why there's such a scarcity of oneness writers. We know it because of the volume of the anti writings, the, the adverse writings. We know it because their enemies 
said they had millions of followers. Entire countries given over to them. The panic in the enemy's voice, you could hear it. So Rome came along. They viewed those oneness advocates as a threat, as a subversive group. They sent the soldiers after them. Roman soldiers that burned books and, and, and destroyed cities and temples were just replaced by Jesuits who did the same. The assassins that pursued Hannibal, the great Carthaginian general, are no different than the Jesuits and the agents of John Calvin, the, re the reformers that chased John Calvin through the night. It was there to stamp out any opposition. They viewed this as the work of God. And so now modern day scholars will say, well, where's the work at? There, you don't have any evidence that you ever existed. Oh, yeah, we do. There's slivers of it here, slivers of it there in, their, in the writings of their critics and their detractors. It's there. And the reason why uh, the Trinity and all of these doctrines got a foothold is because they destroyed oneness works, some of which survived by the grace of God, and they stand as powerful witnesses from millennia ago against uh, the depravity of that Roman Catholic Church and her daughters. Now we've got podcasts. Now we have educated people that can stand up and can say, oh, no, we were there. Our forefathers were there. They preached this gospel. They contended for this gospel. And this gospel never died, but it lived and it survived. And Jesus said that upon this rock I will build <clears throat> my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> so these are just, you know, in the middle of all this cancel culture in the middle of all of the censoring that big tech is doing. It's no new thing, folks. They just used to do it with drawn swords and assassins who crept in the dark of night, who poisoned drinks and who slipped daggers into people's hearts. They did this to further the Romish agenda. Um, so modalism, oneness, the, the tactics of Rome, all of these things lead us to where we are today. But then, just like now, there are people who love the Word of God. They read the Word of God. They see that the Trinity's not in the Bible. They see that no babies were ever baptized in the Bible. They see that the sale of indulgences was added. They see that, that the Pope claims to be Jesus Christ, the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ on earth. They see um, the priests who take confession and the confessional booths, and, and the scripture admonishes there's, there's one mediator between God and men. So we don't go to priests. We don't go to a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Mary is not. Priesthood, there's no priesthood that does that. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood and holy nation of peculiar people, not some elite group that can only interpret the scripture for you. God gave the scripture to the common man. He gave it to the fishermen, the publicans, to the lowly. And if they could understand it, you can understand it. And don't you let any pointy-headed, professorial, intellectual talk you out of it. And they'll try to slip into Greek and Hebrew on you because it doesn't say it in English. <laughs> uh, don't let them do it, man. We've got some great Greek and Hebrew scholars that can refute it very finely. But, but that, that's a game that the old Catholics used to play. 
They would make sure that it was written in Latin so they could keep it out of the illiterate populace hands. And for a thousand years, 1260 years, if the scripture is to be accurately portrayed, when you read about the woman who fled from the face of the serpent for 1260 days, um, that's, that's many believe that is 1260 years that the Roman Catholic church would have dominance and would, would keep men in ignorance and darkness. And during that dark age period, they took the Bible away from people. They, they instituted all of these false doctrines, probably the most insidious of which is the Trinity. And, and it undermines the original book of Acts formula. It undermines the original message that Peter, the great apostle Peter, preached. But don't ever, don't ever forget, the church today should look just like the church on that first day. <clears throat> Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And for everybody that wants to say that it's only for that generation, he went on to say, the promise is unto you, and it's to your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So this is the original message. It has never changed. The Bible calls it the everlasting gospel. And not Rome's legions, not Rome's assassins, not her priesthood or her Jesuit enforcers or her Protestant daughters that came forth from her can stop that original bride of Christ. Anyway, that's my thoughts for today. It's been burning in my heart. I love this one God. I love the fact that Jesus is the mighty God in Christ, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I hope you've enjoyed the session today. Um, That is what Rome's tactics were like. They were a propaganda machine. They believed in completely exterminating and annihilating their opponents. They, um, they corrupted things, they coerced and, and took over things, and the religious institutions did the same. Through it all, the church survives. It might have destroyed Carthage, it might have destroyed Corinth, it might have destroyed Greece, but it didn't restore, destroy the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's kingdom stands. It stands stronger than ever before. It's a, it's a, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, and it will It will increase and increase until it fills the whole earth. So God bless you. I hope you have a great day. Our prayers are with you. Our thoughts are with you. And until next time, keep on praying. Keep on believing God for great things. God bless you. 